the law of Moses. And what it represents is the works, right? Our works. And so what we find is if we're trying to get into the promised land for us, guess what is a spiritual place? It is a place of fellowship with God. It's a place of reverence with God. It's a place of peace with God. For them, it's a physical place. And again, in Scripture, God's always teaching us through pictures. And in Exodus, we see that Moses could get him to a certain point, but he couldn't get him into that promised land. That would require Jesus. And what we find is many times we try to get into the promised land based upon our works, based upon the law. We try to be good enough in order to walk with God. It's not about that. It's about denying ourselves, not fulfilling our flesh, not trying to do things in our own power, but surrendering to God. And what that shows us is that Moses could only get him to a certain point, but Moses couldn't get him over into that promised land. That required Joshua. And if you and I are going to attain our promised land, Jesus says, I have come to give them life and to give it to them more abundantly. It is through Jesus Christ. Joshua is the Hebrew rendering of Jesus. So when we see the books, Joshua is all about us attaining our promised land. So as we're going through the book today, what I want you to not lose sight of is the fact that this is just a little detail of the process that you and I go through in order to attain our promised land. But before we do that, of course, you guys know I love a good review. So we're going to talk about two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whenever it was I preached last, I can't remember. But the message was just called A Picture of the Father. And we revisited Caleb And what we saw with Caleb is after Caleb had received his inheritance in Canaan, what happened to him is he was faithful to follow through and do exactly what he had done. He had made a promise that he would take Hebron, and he did that very thing. And what it showed us was that he was a man of his word. Then the next thing that he did was he actually challenged his people to address and face evil in regards to telling them they needed to confront the city of Debir. And then what we saw was he actually gave incentives for them to do the right thing that they were supposed to do anyway, He gave them incentives by saying, listen, I'm going to reward the person who brings the victory. I'm going to reward them, my daughter. I'm going to give them my own flesh and blood, my very best. And then the last thing we saw was after that had happened, and after the victory had been attained, that he went to his daughter who had made a request of him. And he not only did he meet the request, but guess what he did? He exceeded her request. And we saw that he lovingly exceeded the desires or or the requests of his children. And so what we saw in Caleb was this beautiful picture of our father, who just happens to be a man of his word, right? Who does exactly what he says he's going to do. A man who, listen, challenges his people to face evil. A man who who rewards faithfulness with his very best. Consider what the Lord rewarded us, man, with his very best, his own flesh and blood, a picture in Caleb. And then the very last thing is that he is one that exceeds the required, the requests of his children. We looked at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 20. It says, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And here we go. And to know the love of Christ. I want you to have that relationship, that love close relationship, right? Which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, verse number 20, this is us. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And so we just see this beautiful representation of the Lord, our Almighty God, displayed in Caleb. Then we had also looked at the, 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 the land, the inheritance that they, had arrived, that, they had, that they had received. And we looked at it from the borders or the boundaries that God established. And we talked about why those boundaries were important, and we'll get into that. But today what we're going to do is we're going to consider the same land, the same territory, but now we're going to consider it from the aspect of their abundance. 
and not only what the abundance brings, but also the challenges that will come along with that abundance. And so the message today is titled, The Baggage of Abundance. And I want you to pay attention to verse 20 to verse 63. No, no applause. That's 43 <laughs> verses. <laughs> we normally do one or two, for goodness sakes, and no one was even impressed. I was like, man, look what we're doing. It's amazing. But you'll understand how we're going to cover that much in just a moment. <laughs> All right, fine. No applause. I'll just, just pray. Lord, thank you so much for today, for this wonderful church. Thank you for these people, Lord, for their heart to receive truth. And Lord, I do pray that you would speak to us, uh, Lord, in a way that uh, only you can. Uh, Lord, I can relay in word, uh, Lord, and in principle. But God, unless your spirit is in it, it is fruitless. So Lord, I pray, God, that you would take what I say today, Lord, which has been directed by you. I have studied, I've prayed. And Lord, I know that you've spoken to me. I'm asking you, Lord, today that you would help me. And Lord, that you would speak through me. Yeah, just remove the human element, and Father, speak to us directly, and let our hearts be receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today, like I said, we're going to cover 43 verses. And what we're going to know is if you've read ahead, you realize the fact that most of them are simply listing the names of cities, okay? Again and again and again and again. And so just because of due diligence, I looked up the names of those cities, and I looked up what they meant. And then I figured out where they were located on our map. And you know what I figured out? There's a lot about the Bible that I have no clue because I don't know what they meant and I did not understand what the purpose of the places were, uh, though I tried. And so understand, everything God does, there is a reason. So no, just because I can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. But at this point in time in my Christian life, I didn't understand anything from that part. But what I did figure out was this represents the entirety of the, um, what we would say, the... Um, uh, the, the wealth of this part of the land. This represents the population centers, okay? This is where the tribe of Judah is going to be taking. And what we recognize is the fact that these also, not only are they cities, but they were strongholds, okay? These were pagan strongholds in Canaan. Remember, it's all about making that Cain, making Canaan righteous to make it holy, to make it godly. When you and I are addressing our own hearts, our own lives, it's all about, what are we doing? Trying to make ourselves holy and righteous and godly through surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ. We battle against our flesh. This is what's being pictured for us as we're looking at them attaining their promised land. But what we see is as God goes through this, he, the names didn't give us a lot and the locations, I didn't get anything out of that. But what was really interesting is God was very specific to number how many cities that there were. Each time he goes through, and we're going to take, I'm going to just do a highlights as I go through these verses. Verse number 20 says this, This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. And the uttermost cities of the tribe of the children of Judah toward the coast of Edom southward. And then he lists 29 cities. Then he goes into verse number 32 or 33 and he gives 14 cities. Verse 41 gives 16 more cities. Verse 44 gives 9 more cities. From 45 to 47, he gives us an explanation. He says, Ekron with her towns and her villages. From Ekron, even under the sea, all that lay, lay near Ashdod and their villages. Ashdod with her towns and her villages. Gaza with her towns and her villages. Under the river Egypt and the great sea and the border thereof was three cities. Verse 51 gives us 11 more cities. 50, verse 54 gives us 9 more cities. Verse 57 gives us 10. 59 gives us 6 more. Verse 60 gives us two cities, and lastly, in verse 62, it gives us, it says, in the wilderness there were six cities. Now, that totals up to 115 total cities and their villages. So these cities, again, they represent the accumulated wealth of southern Canaan. It's important for us to realize that these are not just empty dwellings. No, these things are containing, they have livestock, they have supplies, they have vineyards, they have furnishings, they have wells. 
they have gardens. We literally, we know this because before they ever got there, or in Joshua 24, God tells them that, listen, this is what I provided for you. He explains it to us in Joshua 24, 13. God says this, and I have given you a land for which ye did not labor and cities which ye did not build. And he said, and ye dwell in them of the vineyards and olive yards which ye planted not, do ye eat. So you guys are being literally handed this great abundance. I'm going to put it right in your hands. So not only do these cities also contain those things that we just read, but guess what they also contain? They also contain idol-worshiping temples. There's pagan idolatry all over this. This entire nation is, in, is inhabited with dedicated idolaters. So these cities would have contained uh, worshiping altars for worshiping false gods as well as the idols themselves. So this is a concern as they move into this land. So then I, God was like, I was like, okay, God, well, what's the relevance of the number 115? Well, if we go to the Bible and we look, well, guess what? There's only one place in the Bible where you can find chapter 115, and it's in the book of Psalms. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalms. And you know what's really crazy about Psalm 115? Is it's specifically addressing the issue of struggling with idolatry, interestingly enough. And so what's happened is, now obviously that's not for them. It's not for people back then. But God, again, remember God's teaching on multiple levels and in different time frames at different moments. And so what happens, he knew we would have this book, and he knew there would be the relevance of him pointing out 115, and he knew in the future that the Psalm 115 would exist, and you and I are supposed to be drawn to these little crumbs that God leaves in Scripture to take us where it is we need to be. So Psalm 115, verses 1 through 18, it says this, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy, for thy, for thy true sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. He's saying, listen, he is the one true God. Here we go to verse number four. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. This is what would have been left behind. Verse five. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throats. They that make them are like unto them, listen to this, so is everyone that trusteth in them. He's saying they are empty. They are devoid of real life. They are spiritually dead. Okay? So not only are these things that way, but the people that worship them. Verse number 9 and nine through 11. O Israel, he says, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. For ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. God is warning them not to put their faith in anything but him. He is all that they must have. Verse number 12 says, the Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord. Notice that was specifically the first verse was talking about the Jews. Notice this part here. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Ye are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. But the earth that he given, that the earth hath he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord. For this time forth and forevermore, praise the Lord. So the exhortation that we hear is, is to keep Almighty God in His place of preeminence in our lives. 
And so it seems that verse number 115 is showing us a little bit of the conflict potentially that's going on in their hearts. There's going to be a struggle with idolatry as they move into these idolatrous nations, revealing to us that, listen, with the good, with the abundance, guess what? The bad also comes. There is a lure to idolatry. And so when you and I realize this is going to be correlating to us, there is issues that we're going to recognize. It is always the case with abundance. It always has a tendency to draw us to idolatry. Consider that fact that that's who we are. When we discuss the importance of boundaries, you pointed out the blessings that came with staying within the boundaries, right? And then we talked about the destruction that comes when we exceed those boundaries. And so now as the tribe of Judah starts to inhabit this myriad of cities that they have just received, we're going to notice the fact that they're going to have some choices to make. And the essential truth I want us to address today is the title of the message, The Baggage of Abundance. And what we're going to see is the fact that earthly abundance brings with it the temptation to idolatry. It brings with it the entanglements with the cares of the world. And we're going to see that it brings with it the lure of compromise. Okay? So keep in mind that the tribe of Judah, uh, these guys are nomads. Okay? For the last 40-some years, they have been carrying around their possessions on their backs. They have had no place to call home. Every single time they have slept, they have slept in a mobile tent that they have carried on their backs. They have had no home. So now they have a permanent place to live. Now suddenly they have a place to stow their belongings. Now they have a a, a table that they can eat at instead of eating in their laps. Now they can actually sleep in a bed. They can have a roof over their head. They can go out into a garden that's outside of their home and they can pick vegetables instead of having to finally scrounge as they have been doing for all this time. And so this, is, this would have been incredible for them. This would be like you and I bringing someone from, a, from the village in Malawi, one of the outskirt villages, someone who has never had a hot shower, someone who's never had a pair of shoes, no one who, has, who, has, who, who literally lives basically starvation. They're just eating what they can to survive. Imagine bringing them to your house. They've never experienced anything like what we have. And you go, oh, you need water? Just it's right there. Oh, you want it hot? Just turn this one. They're like, if they want hot water, they boil it, right? And you go, okay. Oh, and then clothing. (laughs) I got more. I got clothes I've never even worn. They still got tags on them. They're like, what? They have two outfits for the year, right? Uh, Shoes. I I mean, I got I got sneakers. I got dress shoes. I got walking shoes. And I got I wear these when I go to the mall. These are the beach. I wear these at the beach. And these over here. They never had shoes, right? Right. And we're going. You just pick whatever you want. And food. <laughs> Wait till you look in here. Oh, look at that. Help yourself, whatever you want. And when you're done, whatever you don't eat, just throw it away. It's all right. Yeah. Right? That's our world. Yeah. Right? And so imagine coming from there. Do you think it would affect them? Oh, yeah. I would guess so. Just a little bit. Electricity, leisure, technology. There's a really good chance that our American lifestyle would impact them. It would, our incredible abundance would impact perhaps their work ethic. Because you know what's amazing? You go there and you see people that literally are carrying a bucket of water on their head and walking miles. Now, a bucket of a five-gallon bucket, Kobe saw it himself, my wife's seen it. A five-gallon bucket weighs about 50 to 60 pounds. Imagine 50 to 60 pounds sitting directly on your head on a plastic bucket and walking for miles. And what's amazing is they'll have babies on their backs. Or they'll have wood in this arm and they're carrying 50 pounds on their head and they're carrying it because they've got to carry that back to take care of their family. 
Is it possible that their work ethic would be impaired by the fact of just the amazing abundance that we have? I'd say so. How about relationships? What's amazing is when you're there, the eye contact that they make. You have conversations and they, they're locked in. They're not, they're not in any way distracted. They're, they're in the conversation. Here, we're lucky if somebody look at us for more than two or three seconds. They're like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, oh, one sec. Oh, hold on. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, 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 oh yeah, 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 I got you. No, I can do both, it's cool, we're good. Right? Yes. And what about their walk with God? Maybe their dependence upon the Lord. You know what adversity does? It draws us close to God. What does abundance do? Draws our attention, right? So we've recognized this principle. And one of the things that I talked about last week is I brought up that Revelation 3.17. And this is the God speaking to the Laodicean church. And he says, you know, he says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He is rebuking the church because they have fallen in love with materialism. And you know what? The Laodicean church also happens to be a representation of the time that we live in right now. There are seven church ages, and we live in the seventh right now. So God is rebuking them, but guess what? He's also rebuking us. We're so consumed with so much stuff that we've lost sight of what's important. And so with that perspective in mind, let's consider what we talked about the first point, which is with their newfound wealth, we're going to consider that earthly abundance will bring with it the temptation to idolatry. So not only these Israelites, not only do they have to fight the temptation of the actual idols that are there, they have to fight the temptation to worship and idolize their wealth. Okay? We look in 1 Timothy verse chapter 6, verses 8 through 12. And it says this, verse 8 says, And having food and raiment, let us be wherewith content. We should be able to stop right there. Wouldn't that be awesome? Unfortunately, God knows us too well. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, listen, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. This is what you must do. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Your life, if you'll do the right thing, if you'll possess and trust in God, your life will make a difference in the lives of others. And your wealth won't be the physical things. It will be the spiritual things that you'll be investing in, setting on to those things to life everlasting. Here Paul is reiterating the same message that we heard in Psalm 115. Keep God in his proper place. And what we find is that we find in verse number 10, he uses the word covet, right? For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. Notice that phrase right there. They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves. They weren't pierced by the devil. Pierced themselves through with many sorrows, okay? Now, understand, coveting, what does coveting do? It draws us away from God. It gets the heart of Man, take note of what Paul, he's going to define for us what covetousness is, okay? This is going to happen in Colossians chapter 3 as he speaks to the church of Colossae. Colossians 3 verses 3 through 5. He says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Verse 5, this is it. Mortify therefore your members. Your members is talking about your body. He says, kill your body, die to self. 
And he says, Mortify therefore your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. And here comes the definition. Covetousness, which is idolatry. He says to be covetous is to be an idolater. So we go, okay, wow. Now, if we consider that, covetousness, and we think about Christians of today, how many people covet other folks' families? Boy, you see them on Facebook. Oh, look how happy they are. Remember, it's Facebook. <laughs> you know, you, some, some, some of us know people's stories, and we're like, man, they're just like fighting cats and dogs. I hate you. I want you dead. And then you see a picture, they're like, you're like, man, they seem so happy. Mm-hmm. You covet people's careers. Oh, man, their job. I wish, I wish I had their job. Their possessions, right? Their homes. We covet these things. And we justify those lusts by taking a, a humanistic or a worldly term and attaching it to it and making it into a good thing. We call them motivations, right? Well, I've got to have a vision board. How am I going to attain that new car unless I put it up on the wall, sweetheart? And I know just what it's going to look like. I'm going to, I'm the, the, the wheels, I got a picture of the wheels here. Those are the seatbelts I picked out. I got the whole thing. I, got, I can see the whole thing. It motivates me. Why am I, I it helps me to work hard. It helps me to put my, my focus because I know what it is I'm working, what I'm working towards, but that's not what the Bible says we're supposed to be doing. Right. Right? What does the Bible say about how it is and why we do what we do? What should motivate us? Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. And whatsoever you do... Do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, not even self, this man. Knowing that of the Lord, ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. 1 Corinthians verse 10, chapter 10, verse 31 says this, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. So our motivation for what we do, the way we work, all that we have, it should be about motivated. We should be motivated to bring glory to God. It should not be about driving a nicer car or having a bigger house. Now, if your car is broken and getting a new car, there's nothing wrong with that. But listen, if your car is driving just fine, you go, I just want something. Man, those heated seats, man. I'm telling you, I would like them heated seats. I would feel good on my tissue. I'd love it, right? And what happens is we start to covet because someone else has one, and we see it and we go, ooh. And see, it's our human nature. We're selfish by nature. We are pleasure-driven. So not only do we have to deal with this in our modern day and age, but what you've got to realize is, guess what? The tribe of Judah are just people like us. They have the same things drawing on them. And so imagine if they've come from having nothing and carried everything on their backs, and now they're like, whoa, look at this. Man, look at my house. Look at my home. Look at my bed. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. They're suddenly flushed with, with wealth and material abundance. And what can happen is very easily they can fall into covetousness. They can idolize the very things that they have. And you recognize covetousness has been an issue with humanity from the get-go, right? What was it with Eve, right? Oh, boy, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Ooh, to make one wise, oh, yes, I will have that. Thank you very much. What was it that got David's heart? Looking out the window and he saw Bathsheba. That was the fall. What caused them to, to build a golden calf right underneath God while he's literally, the earth is shaking, he's on the mountain, and they're down there building a golden calf. Covetousness, idolatry. It's amazing. It's, it's something that we have a proclivity to. All of us, all of us do. And it is the very same covetousness that the devil uses to grip our hearts as we drool over images on the Internet. 
the same thing. Yes. And yes. we are fueled by our eyes and our lustful desires. And though God has given us all that we need, we think of what we want. I want more. And so the earthly, attempt to, the earthly abundance does give the temptation to idolatry. And the only way to circumvent it, we go, okay, well, that's good that we all have. That's good news to know. What do I do? How do I, how do I address it? How do I deal with it in my own heart? See, our natural inclination toward idolatry can only be dealt with by keeping, keeping God in his proper position in our lives. When Jesus is instructing the church, when he's speaking in Matthew 6.33, he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, Get your orientation right. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you go, Okay, I want the kingdom of God. What about his righteousness? His righteousness is to be holy. It's to walk with him. It's to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And he says, and if you'll do that, guess what? All that stuff you've been worrying about, all that stuff you're stressing about, all those things you're, you're dreaming about, I'll take care of all that stuff. Amen. Just put me in my proper, my proper place. But understand, it sounds simple to do. But because of our selfish nature, it is a daily struggle. Can we all agree? Yes. Amen. Amen, amen. Okay. So we see that it's earthly abundance. Uh, it, uh, it does that. It uh, draws us to covetousness or lures us to covetousness. But then we also see that, and secondly, it entangles us with the cares of the world. So you see, when you have a home, now what do you have to do? You've got to take care of it. You've got to keep it up, right? You've got a reek, 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 leaky roof. I don't know when I want to say a leaky reef. Um, <laughs> you got a leaky roof, right? And you've got to go deal with it. You've got these things that now suddenly you didn't have to worry about before. But now you've, your attention's being drawn to these things. And these previously unencumbered Israelites have now um, to deal with the care of their properties. And what's interesting is we know that they're going to require maintenance. We know and understand that these places are going to require them to put time and energy into it. Because Deuteronomy chapter 7, when we look back in verse number 22, one of the things that God was telling them as he was getting them talking about his provision of the property, he says, And the Lord God will put out those nations before thee, by little and little. So not all at once. It'll be, you'll slowly taper them out. Thou mayest, is, thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon them. So what he's saying, listen, unless this place gets overrun and falls into disrepair, what I'm going to do is keep a, a portion of the, pop, of the pagan population there to make sure it's taken care of. So when the Israelites are ready, they will take it and it will be preserved for them. Verse 23 through 24 says this, but the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee, and shall deliver them with a mighty destruction, and they shall be destroyed. And he shall deliver their kings into thine hands, and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before thee. I want you to remember that phrase. There shall no man be able to stand, no man be able to stand before thee until thou have destroyed them. So then God points out after that, he's going to shift his attention, and now he's going to start addressing the idols. Okay? So here, way back here, this is before they ever get there, he tells them beforehand, hey, listen, guess what? When you get there, you're going to have to deal with these idols because they're going to be waiting in those cities for you. Verse number 25. The graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it unto thee. He says, listen, even after you destroy them and the gold and the silver that's left over, don't even take that. I don't want it in your house, lest thou be snared therein. You get caught up in the cares of the world, for it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. Verse 26, neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thine house, lest thou be a cursed thing like it. But thou shalt utterly detest it, and thou shalt utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. 
God is being very clear about his instructions about destroying those idols because he knows the lure that they'll have on the hearts of his people. He tells them to destroy, destroy them completely. And then he says, listen, don't even save the remnants after the destruction. What you would deem valuable, that's cursed as well. And what we must realize is the cares of the world, the things that lure us in this world, they're cursed. They're all cursed. Nothing that's on this earth is going to survive. It is all slated for destruction. Every single material thing will be burned up with a fervent heat. That's the reality. 1 Timothy 6, 7 says this, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The things of this world that we're so concerned with, that we're so focused on, they have no eternal value. Amen. Amen. They don't mean anything. They don't mean anything to God. And yet, they have our hearts. Especially today, man. In the world that it is now, we're lured by things all over the world. Used to just be your neighbor. Ooh, look at that. (laughs) But now... I mean, no matter where somebody is, they can post a picture of it. We can, ooh, do you see what I see? Wow. Why not me? Why not me? And so what we have to realize is the fact that the temporal concerns of this world, things like homes and cars and possessions, they are detrimental to our faith. They are destructive to our faith. When Jesus is speaking about faith as it's being formed, as the word of God is being given, he compares it to a sower sowing seed. And one of those examples, he says this in Mark 4, verses 18 through 19. He says, And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this world, listen to this next part, and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word. So the word of God is speaking and it literally chokes it off so you can't hear it anymore. And because the word, right, guess what? Not only does it choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. It's saying that the word of God becomes unfruitful because our hearts are going to the word of God and we're reading it and we're distracted by our phone or so distracted by our thoughts and are rambling on. And we're going, okay, yeah, 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 I know I'm supposed to read. I'm going, I, 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 what I said, I'm reading a whole chapter. How much more have I got to go here? Okay, I got what? Three, three, well, one and a half pages. Okay, I can do Okay, good. I'm a, that's the attitude we have. And so this becomes unfruitful, this thing that can change our lives, the very, the very heart of God on paper, the thing that can change and that saves a man's soul. Faith cometh my hearing and hearing by the word of God. And yet this word becomes unfruitful because we're so concerned with this stuff that doesn't matter. And the devil dangles things in front of our eyes and shows us things that get us our attention. And we're like, wow. And we get caught up in the cares of the world. And it chokes the word. How many Christians in the world today can be labeled as unfruitful? Okay. What does it mean to be fruitful? Okay. Fruitful means that there's some display from your life. Your life is making a difference. Jesus says, he says, and, uh, he says follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay. So the ultimate result of being a follower of Christ, doing what you're supposed to do, is you will be fishers of men. We'll see the souls of men because of your life. And he's saying, hey, listen, people are unfruitful. They're not winning souls. They're not telling people the gospel. They're consumed with self. And what we find is the fact that God is, is desiring for us to, 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 to walk with Him, to, to be fruitful, to make a difference in the world. And, and when we consider people here, it's not that they don't have the Holy Spirit of God. It's not that they're not saved. Oh, they're saved. 
And it's not that they don't want to, they don't want to love God and serve God. They do. But the problem is that their heart's divided. You see, when you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, he makes a statement about the Laodicean church age, about us and the church of today. And he says, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That means they love God. That means they love God's word, but they just happen to love pleasure more. When my buddy calls me on a Saturday and says, hey, dude, I just got a brand new boat. Oh, baby, she is sweet. You're going to love it. Tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., meet me at the lake, dude. We're going to hit it. I mean, all day long, we're going to just rock and roll. I got gas for everything. I got fishing poles. I got the whole shebang. We're going to have a blast. Man, and they record the services. That means I can go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, you can count on me. I'll be there. Right on. 8 a.m., let's get on the lake. Yeah, right? Yeah. Because, you know, hey, I can justify because the service is recorded, so I'll get it later, so I'll do both. No problem. Consider this. What if in the exact same instance, your buddy calls you on Saturday night and says, hey, man, new boat, the whole same thing. And you go, oh, dude, I would love to. I mean, man, I'm telling you, I would love to. I, I can't think of anything I'd rather do, but I'm not going to make it. What, 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 what's going on? Man, I got church tomorrow. Hey, you know my life, it's priority. God's got to be number one. What does that say to that guy? Do we care about his soul or do we care about ourselves? I want to go to the lake. I want to go have fun. What about him? He's not walking with God if the Sunday's not important to him. He's not walking with him. Maybe he's lost altogether and he's looking at your life going, just give me some hope, give me some hope, and let me see what he says. And we go, yeah, man, I'll ride ride off church, no problem. We don't realize the cares of the world, the impact that the devil's having in this lost world. Yes. Because we're so selfish. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm pointing at me, man. I'm selfish. I know it. I struggle against this every day. But we've got to be aware of our issues and we can't deal with them. What did he say, Matthew 6.33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yes. And all these things shall be added unto you. And if you're a follower, guess what? I'll make you a fisher of men. And your life instead of... Because recognize... Listen, God does the catching. He's the net. Our life is the bait. We're either drawing people to the Lord or pushing them away. That's right. Amen. And so we have to assess our choices and our decisions. Do we draw people to God because they see something in us that's different? Or do we just look like everybody else and they just see a hypocrite? This is the problem with our world today. It's a problem with the church today. Sadly, most Christians in our world today That's where they stand. And what we have to ask ourselves is, how about us? How about us? Have the cares of the world become so powerful in our life that they block our view of why it is we're here? We're here not for self. We're here for the Lord to work in and through us. People go, I want to live for God. It's not, he's not asking you to live for him. He's asking you, to let him live through you. Amen. See, if, it's, if you're living for God, it's in your own power. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. God works with me. It's his power that changes lives. We get caught up on ourselves, and guess what? The cares of the world can be thinking that we're an important part of the project, that God needs me, God needs me. God doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. He wants to make you a part of his plan. That's right. But what happens? We get full of ourselves, and that's the danger with us having knowledge, right? That's why I'm warning us. Like, don't lose sight. Don't get so focused on the tree, 
what I got today that you lost sight of the forest, which is, hey, are you in the promised land? Are you walking with God? Are you, are you, have you sanctified yourself in the world? Are you walking on holiness? Because what happens, we can be knowledgeable and we go, like, you know what, he's talking about people not being in the church. Well, hey, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, did you notice I'm here? Keep track of that. Right? And we can pat ourselves on the back thinking we're something special. Right. It's our reasonable service to give ourselves as a living sacrifice. Our reasonable service. But we want accolades for doing the simplest, smallest things. And Sunday morning, what well, we're asking you, maybe an hour and a half. And then Wednesday, maybe another hour. So we're asking for what? what three hours, four hours a week? But you know how many people come on Wednesday nights? One-tenth of this church. You know why? It's not a priority. It's not a priority. And you know what? If there's one person there, and it's just my wife, I won't be here. Because you know what? The day when you say, I need to be there, if I give up, and the doors are shut, and the lights are out, and you come here broken, I can't let that happen. God loves us, guys. He wants to see us grow. He wants to see us thrive for the glory of God. But we're so concerned with the cares of the world that we lose sight of what's really important. Colossians 3.2 says this. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So we see the earthly, earthly abundance brings with it the temptation to idolatry, entanglements with the cares of the world. And lastly, we see that it also brings the lure of compromise. And here I'll read you the 63rd verse of, of Joshua 15. It says this, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah, notice the wording, could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with them, dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. So when this is being recorded, he says, up to this day, guess what? They're still there. They haven't done. Yet God commanded them that they would get the inhabitants of Canaan out. Listen to Joshua. Reiterate God's instructions to them in Joshua 3.10. And Joshua said, hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you. And that he, he will without fail, notice the wording, will without, without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites. And notice the last one. The Jebusites, he said, I will without fail drive out the Jebusite. Right? That's who he lists. And yet Joshua tells us, he, God, will without fail drive them out from before us. De Deuteronomy chapter 7, we looked at it a minute ago, verses 23 through 24. It says, But the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee, and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction, and they shall be destroyed. And he shall deliver their kings unto thine hand. And thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before thee until thou have destroyed them. God told them that he would drive their enemies out. And it was through their dependence upon him that it would be accomplished. Verse 63 tells us, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. So, now, based upon God's promise, based upon God's character, based upon the fact that God is faithful to always keep his word, this tells us that the problem is not with God. Amen. The problem is with the children of Judah. Right. 
And so as opposed to depending upon God, what's happening is now they're allowing themselves to put their faith and trust in themselves. The children of Judah could not drive them out. And they're right, they can't. But God can. He wants to work through them. And you see, they stop. When we stop depending upon God and start trusting in ourselves, here's where we start to go awry. Can I promise you, we are headed for defeat in our Christian lives. We will not take steps. We will not gain ground in our promised land through putting faith in our abilities, our talents, our own determination. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. No, God, only you can. I submit myself, therefore, to God. I resist the devil, and he'll flee from me. I don't have to fight these battles. God, you'll battle. You'll fight for me. But what happens is we think somehow that it's got to be us. I've got to be this. I've got to be that. No, you just need to surrender. If God's drawing your heart, just surrender. Just give in and say, God, you fight for me because I can't do it. And yet we have people that have this idea. How do I feel like I'm, why do I feel like I'm losing ground in my walk with God? Right? Why am I always angry? Why am I sad? Why am I frustrated and depressed? Why am I dissatisfied with the world around me? Why, 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 why? You know why? Because we're depending upon ourselves. We are trusting in ourselves. These are indicators of the heart. This shows us where we are, right? We look into Scripture, and what does it tell us? Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 23, talking about our dependence upon God. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, there's the command, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? Walk in the Spirit. It's all about being dependent upon the Lord. And understand, if He is leading us, guess what? The flesh doesn't have power. Notice what he says. He says, walk in the Spirit. There's the command. That's your, that's your focus. You walk in the Spirit. You walk surrendered to God. And ye shall not fulfill the lust of flesh. That back part is the byproduct of what happens when we do what God tells us to do. The flesh has no power. Verse 17 and 18. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are the contrary one to the other. So ye cannot do the things that ye would. Notice that wording, you cannot. Remember what it said about them? They could not drive them out, right? You and I, when our flesh is battling against our spirit and there's all this distraction, we cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. He's saying, listen, the law, the flesh has no power over you if you're walking in the spirit. Then he describes how the flesh manifests. What does it look like? How do I know if I'm in the flesh? What does it look like in my life? Well, he tells us. He defines it for us here. Verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Listen for these, okay? Remember, adultery. That's not just in the physical world. That's spiritual adultery as well. Fornication. That's sex outside of marriage. Uncleanness, right? Uh, just, just wickedness. Lasciviousness. That's a wicked, sensual thoughts. Idolatry. Notice that one. Idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Variance. That's just mean you're, you're just disagreeable. Emulations, man. You want what other people want. You desire for it. Wrath. Strife. Seditions. You're, just, you're always a problem. You're always finding issues to create strife. Heresies. You stand against God. Envyings. Murders. Drunkenness. Revelings. And such like. Other which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that ye which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. He's talking about our promised land. He says, listen, if you're struggling with these things, you're not in the promised land, buddy. No matter how much you may tell yourself and make signs going, promised land. He's like, no, 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 sorry. You're not there, buddy. You're still in the wilderness. 
And what happens is people struggle with their flesh and they try to convince themselves that if they can just stop doing these things, that they'll be in the Spirit. And that's not what it says. It says walk in the Spirit, not don't live in the flesh. And so what happens is because of our selfishness and our think of how important we are, we think I've got to go into my life and I've got to deal with these issues. And when I get all these issues dealt with and I've controlled them because I've learned how to recognize them and now I've got them all under control, that I'll be walking in the Spirit. But we're not. We're just in the midst of a battle against our flesh with our own will. And you know what? There'll come a day when you'll be weak and you'll fail. And you go, God, what happened? He's like, you were never trusting in me. You're always trusting in you. Walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If these things are evident in our lives, then we have compromised our dependence upon God and shifted it to ourselves. This is the recipe for defeat in the Christian's life. We've seen it through the story of Joshua. Every single time he did not trust in God and he trusted in his men and trusted himself, he failed. Go through Scripture. Every single individual that trusts in themselves and does not put faith in God, they fail. We can look in our own lives and recognize it and see it ourselves. Throughout Scripture, victory only comes through God being in the leadership role and leading and guiding our lives. He is the one that brings, believer, that brings victory. And so as a believer, what does it look like to walk with God? So if those indicators of the flesh are there, well, God says, well, hey, let me also tell you what, just so you can recognize when you're, when you're in the Spirit. When you're surrendered, these are going to things you're going to see. This is your fruit. This is going to be awesome. Keep an eye out for these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? Love for everybody. We love the world, same as God. Joy, right? Joy, not happiness, joy. That no matter what, I trust and I walk with God and I have, a, I have a joy in my heart because of who He is. Peace. This is not a lack of conflict. This is a sense of emotional connection with our holy and loving God. Long-suffering. That's patience with humanity. Hello, anybody? Yikes. Driving Charlotte traffic. That's hard to be long-suffering. Gentleness. Gentleness. We don't have a hard word for people. We have a kind word. Right? We don't respond with viciousness. This is Goodness, faith, meekness. What is meekness? People think meekness is weakness. It's not. Meekness is strength under control. The best example I can give you is like a, like a, like a five-year-old child holding on to the reins of a horse that weighs 2,000 pounds, and that horse just follows that little five-year-old. With a flick of his head, he could shoot that kid into the woods. But you know what? It's power submitted, right? It's power under control. That's a meekness you see in that horse. And the last one it says is temperance. Temperance is self-control. How many? Well, I just lost it. I just couldn't control it. I just, ah, I just, you know, ah. Right? We all deal with it. Right? We've all been there. I'm not pointing fingers, but I'm just saying that if we are walking in the Spirit, guess what? Temperance is a part of who we are. And it says against, against such there is no law. You know what? Against this, the flesh has no power. You walk in the Spirit, and guess what? The love of God, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the goodness, the faith, the meekness, the temperance, it just shows up in your life. And it becomes the light that people see in you when they say there's something different about your life. How can you be in the adversity that you're in right now? And yet, I see you being patient and loving. You have joy and peace. And the fact that you have temperance in this situation, man, I would have lost my mind. I don't know what it is about your life. There's a light. And this world is consumed in darkness as we speak right now. 
and it desperately needs light, and that's our responsibility every day. But when we're distracted by the cares of the world, we're caught up in idolatry, and we've got ourselves compromising in our faith, we don't shine. We just blend in with everybody else. Does God have our hearts or has the baggage of abundance shifted our hearts onto the cares of the world? We have to ask ourselves, where am I individually? If I stood accountable to God today and he said, Let me sh- let's, let's talk about your walk on June 25th. We get raptured at the end of the service. Boom. And we're standing before the Lord. And he goes, where was your heart? Did I have the whole thing? Or were you a bit double-minded? Did the cares of the world, did they have a grip on you? Were you more concerned about what your neighbor thinks than what I think of you? Where are you? Where were you? Well, hey, let's say God gives us another few days. Let's make sure that we're right with him before we stand before him. Because guess what? We're not promised tomorrow. None of us. This could be our last day. If we're caught up in the cares of the world, can I promise you? It brings turmoil. If we look in our life right now, and it is consumed with turmoil, and discontentment, and frustration, and anger, and all that fruit of, this, fruit of the, fle- or the works of the flesh, it tells us where we are. Because you know what? As a Christian, we can be in the darkest, most dangerous place in the world and have absolute peace. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. It's not me in the presence of this moment. It's God's presence with me. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. If you don't have a King James Bible, every other Bible says who. It is which which strengtheneth me. It's the circumstances that we're in and God's presence in the midst of it, which strengthens us. We must walk with God and surrender. And if we do, man, then we can experience what God has for us. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth I unto you. My peace I give unto you. Right? A peace that passeth all understanding and it'll keep your hearts and your minds And guess where these areas of idolatry, guess where they're all rooted and nested? In our hearts and in our minds. I know today was a little bit tough, and I'm sorry. But you know what? We all need to be reminded. We're living in this world, and guess what? We're in a battle every day. And again, God wants us to to experience the promised land. It's available to every single one of us. Not by following Moses, but by following Jesus. Are we submitted to him? Are we surrendered to his will? And are we allowing his word to guide our steps as we face the adversities of life? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today, for the word of God, for the precious truths that you have shared with us. Thank you, Lord, for the intricacies of your word and, God, how it is uh, fashioned to grip us and, Lord, to help us to change and recognize who it is we should, who we should be. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, Listen, if you're here today and you're struggling with issues of the world, you're struggling maybe with uh, being double-minded, I can relate. We all can. There's no one here that can't. I'm going to pray for you. Pray for God to get a hold of your heart. 
because it will not be through our will or our strength or our desire that we can come out of it. It's only through surrendering to the loving hand of God. So as he draws us, each one of us, I'm going to pray and ask God to help us to recognize not only who he is, but who we, is, who we are right now, and yet who it is we can be if we'll just surrender. Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, would you grip us maybe like never before. We live in a materialistic society. We are inundated and consumed with the cares of the world. But Lord, that doesn't mean they have to have our hearts. We can live like, as you tell us, we can live in the world, but not be in, be in the world, but not be of the world. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be just that, that we would be a light in the darkness, that we not be consumed by what's around us, but Lord, that we would rise above it. And that Lord, we would be content with wherewith, with, wherewith all that you have given us. God, help it to just to be food and raiment. And Lord, let us not desire the riches of the world. Help us, God to be surrendered to your desire for us. And Lord, that we would do all that we do, no matter what our job, whatever our circumstance, whatever our situation, whatever our home, whatever our family, whatever our, our children, whatever things we're facing, that we would do all that we do as unto the glory of God. Father, it's why we're here. Help us draw our hearts. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Help them, Father, right now, just to surrender to you, to follow you, to surrender God, their will, their desire, and experience your peace. And for those that are here today that maybe say, I don't know where I stand with God. Maybe you're listening to this recorded or you're watching it online. Listen, God is calling you. I can promise you, if you do not have a relationship with Christ, if maybe you're religious, but you don't know Jesus, you don't know for certain you're on your way to heaven, can I promise you that God loves you right where you are? And his whole mission for coming to this earth was to restore broken people, people that are consumed with sin, who need a savior, and that is who he is. And with loving hands, he reaches out to you right now. And all you have to do is receive the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you realize that you are a sinner, that your sin is the very thing that separates from you, you from God, you know, you feel the draw of God on your hearts. You've heard the truth of who he is. And you recognize that he's calling you. And all you want to do is right now, you want to surrender. You want to receive the gift of God. He's willing to give it to you right now in your broken condition. Exactly exactly as you are. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive him as your savior, if you want to surrender to the call of God, I'm going to lead you in prayer. I'm going to have you repeat after me, but there's no magic in the prayers. There's no, there's no ceremony involved. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your savior, repeat after me in your heart and in your mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin. I believe that you died for me on the cross and that you love me in spite of myself. And I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how to come into my heart, Lord, to pay my sin debt, to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. By faith, I receive you as my savior. I pray, Father, you help me to walk with you and to live for you, that you might use my life as an instrument of righteousness to this broken world. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.